You're with Sean Jung and Where the Veil Grows Thin, an exploration of the sacred moments of our human experience in life and death, joy and sorrow, birth and end of life. It's the unscripted instant when the heart opens, the face-to-face moments with the divine. Hello, and welcome to another slice of my life. One of the details, and there weren't that many, but there were some, that I left out of the podcast talking about my mom's death was a story she told in the legacy letter she had written to us. I mentioned it in the podcast, but not in any detail. This particular memory is one all five of her children share. Each of us undoubtedly has our own unique recollection of the day. I say this because it was 56 years ago, and because my observations of the effect of traumatic events on people's memory is that we all do what we have to do to process and contain traumatic events. So each one of us might have a slightly different recollection of that day and the days, weeks, and months that followed. It is a day in 1967. It is August. Mom, as she has done every some of our lives, loaded her five children into our station wagon to make the 3,000-mile drive from our home in Southern California to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, where, once there, we would stay gloriously happy to be in the folds of her extended family, the only extended family any of us kids ever knew. Dad was a periodic presence at best during these summer travels. Mom would take different routes each year, trying to expose us to all the national parks and historical sites of all the lower states. We camped most of the time, but every week or so we'd hit a Howard Johnson's motel so we could play in the pool and sleep in real beds, and so she could use a phone to call her parents and our dad to let them all know that we were safe and sound. When it was almost time for school to start, she'd race us back to California just in the nick of time for school. For me personally, the memories of our summers in Virginia are some of the happiest of my life. Her only brother, Pete, and his wife, Dorothy, had six kids and lived in Virginia near my grandparents, the 11 of us cousins, loved being together. The summer of 67, we were traveling in a retrofitted Chevy 2 camper van with a large enclosed carrier on top for all the camping gear and duffel bags. There were no other drivers yet in the family. My brother Michael was learning to drive, but he was not driving all of us that day. We also had a friend of Michael's with us from Virginia, a boy named Hank. I hardly would have remembered that, except she mentions it in her letter. She had read about the caverns in Carlsbad, New Mexico, where every night at dusk the bats leave the caves in search of food. It sounded spectacular to her, and she wanted us all to get to see it. She had intended to reach the National Park in time to set up camp and get to the caves in time to see the bats, but we were running a little late. 
We had just crossed the plains of southern Texas on a hot August day when she saw a sign that said, Shortcut to Carlsbad Caverns, with an arrow pointing down a lonely-looking two-lane paved road. She took the shortcut. I can't say... Excuse me. I can't say how far down this highway we were when, on a wide sweeping curve that dipped down and then back up, a rear tire blew on the van. She later admitted to driving too fast for the road. Anyway, she lost control and the van rolled several times out into the desert. A doctor later said that it was the numbers of us inside the van that kept us from more serious injuries. The fact that we were six kids all tumbling over and over in the van, no restraints, bumping up against each other, kept us from colliding with sharper objects like the corners of the refrigerator. When the van, which was completely totaled, came to rest, what I remember most was the silence in the first immediate moments after the tumbling stopped. The double side doors had been blown open, but somehow we had miraculously stayed inside, all of us except Mom. The windshield was gone, and the full luggage carrier was laying in the sand, a ways away from the van. When we realized Mom was not in the van, panic set in. Panic was already very present. Panic, fear, and shock, along with fairly minor bodily injuries, we, that we were all very aware of how afraid we were. One of us walked over to the carrier, or perhaps two of us, I don't remember, but I do remember when it was lifted, Mom's seemingly lifeless body was beneath it. Then I remember screams and crying. I remember my sister, Melissa, and I running toward the pavement to flag down any approaching car to ask them to please get help. There were no cell phones back then, and I know that the car that finally came along then had to continue driving for quite a few miles before coming to anywhere with a phone. I don't remember if there were more than one or two people in the car, and if anyone stayed with us, but my sister and I chose to stay behind with our siblings and our mom. The youngest, Shannon, had wandered off, and there was a brief moment of new waves of panic as we all tried to find her. The desert was littered with debris from the van. It looked like the van had exploded. All the groceries we had purchased earlier but had not yet put away were scattered all over the place. Shannon was found squatting in the desert with a stick drawing in the sand. She was quiet for a long time after the accident, and I now imagine how profound her trauma must have been. There was nothing like counseling at that time for traumatic events such as this, or at least no counseling that was ever offered to us. I feel certain that other motorists must have stopped, but I don't recall that. I remember many ambulances and sirens and lights, and I remember the kindness of every adult that we encountered. 
I have a vague memory of the small rural hospital emergency room outside of Carlsbad. I remember being told that our mom had not died, but that she had suffered serious injuries and had been taken to surgery. And I remember the fear when we learned we would all be farmed out to the kindness of strangers who had come once word spread about the accident. The couple who took me home with them that night were childless newlyweds. They were kind and gentle and soft and patient. I don't remember how the authorities found out about how to locate our dad, who was at home in California working. I'm pretty sure he flew in the next day and took us all to see mom. He got hotel rooms for us so we could stay a few extra days before we flew back to California, leaving mom hospitalized in Carlsbad. All of these memories are infused with fear and bewilderment. Then, at some point, she re-entered our lives. Once all the broken bones had healed enough for her to travel, she came home, and we carried on. That summer was the last summer Michael ever traveled with us. He started working in the fishing industry the summer of its junior year of high school, no longer available for our annual treks to Virginia. Fast forward to 1999, and Mom is writing her legacy letter to her now adult children. What she had never shared with any of us about that day was what she had experienced in the accident. She didn't know for a very long time that what she had experienced what is what has become known as a near-death experience or an NDE. She described it this way in her letter, and I quote her now. I remember the moment when I knew I had lost control of the van, and my next memory was of peaceful brightness. I was dimly aware of my body lying beneath the luggage rack, which had been on top of the van. I could not see the van. I could hear a faint tinkling of crystal. I was comfortable and pain-free. I was being lifted gently through a large tunnel of light where a group of caring figures awaited. They were faceless but definitive— Two, I know, were grandmothers of mine that had both died before I was born. None of the figures felt like strangers. And they said to me, You may come now if you are ready, but you are not required to come at this time. I felt delighted and pleased. And then suddenly I remembered... Shannon, who had just turned four, and Tara, who was seven, and then Michael, Melissa, and Sean, who as early teenagers were fairly self-sufficient, but I knew without any doubt I wanted to raise them all, and my wish was granted. I have no memory of the next six months of my life, with one major exception, a desperate need to see my children when I first woke up in the hospital. And then after they left my room, I became terrified that two of them had died, and a second visit was arranged. End of quote. She goes on to explain how she told no one about this encounter with spirits. Although she knew it had happened, she was not as certain she could handle the ridicule from other people. My guess is she was most afraid of how my dad would have reacted but she does not say that. 
She goes on to explain to us how extremely meaningful that experience had been for her in the rest of her natural life. She wanted to share with us some of the things it had taught her. The number one thing was that life after death is peaceful and full of love. She told me once that the only way she knew to describe what she had experienced was pure love. Think about that. The idea of something being that perfect. So when she was diagnosed with this very serious illness, she knew she would die from it. And she had not one iota of fear about what awaited her. She had studied enough research to also believe that she was a co-creator of her life. She somehow knew she would be allowed the time she needed to wrap things up with her kids, the time she needed to try to explain to each one of us and her nearest and dearest beloveds what she had learned that day and in all the days that followed. One of the most beautiful pieces of her later life, in my opinion, is that she did not squander the opportunity given to her that day in 1967. She did not let the fear ruin the idea that what she had to share mattered and would make a lasting difference in some lives. She did not fear ridicule or questioning. She was certain. She was sure that what she had to say was true. So when she told us, that she would try to be an active angel in our lives. She also told us that she was uncertain that it works that way. She thought perhaps when we die, we have other work to do around having lived a human life. She felt it was only natural that a soul might require more than a one-time existence on earth in order to begin to grow in understanding empathy, compassion, and mercy. She believed that our spirit guides, sometimes called angels, help us review the reasons for and the consequences of choices made during past lives so we can grow and expand and move closer to enlightenment. Not at all in a punitive or frightening way, always through love. Believing this, she went on to say that in case she had a lot of work to do that would prevent her from being an active angel in our lives, she knew she would always be as close to us as the nearest breeze. I wanted to share this because in my own work in End of Life, I have had very few people willing to talk about near-death experiences that they might have had. But very recently, I had the privilege of being with a gentleman who was trying to determine how much harder he wanted to fight to stay alive. In that conversation, he very casually and subtly mentioned being ventilated and airlifted during a health crisis in which he had died. I asked him if he he would be willing to tell me about that experience. And he said it was not something he talked about to very many people. It was too personal and too hard to put into words. But he did say he was so mad when he woke up and realized he was still alive because it had been such a pain-free and peaceful experience. It was an important piece of his backstory, and one that gave him the same sense of not being at all afraid of being dead that my mom had. His struggle was with leaving his wife and leaving his grandchildren. 
Still, in listening to him, I sensed a bit of fear about all of it. And then he started to talk about the war. He was a Vietnam vet. He had seen active duty. And he talked about helicopters and the brotherhood of men he had served with. In my work in hospice, I was part of some soldiers' lives as they tried to prepare to wrap things up. And my experience has been that they will often fear death. So learning that this man had seen active duty in a war made sense out of that gut feeling I had that maybe he was a bit more afraid than he was willing to talk about. I was not able under these most recent circumstances to explore any of it in any detail. That was not the purpose in my being there with him that day. But it reminded me of one World War II vet who, after many months of visits, shared with me that he was afraid to die because of the things he had done in the war, the lives that he had ended brutally and without question. In his heart, he carried those enemy soldiers that he had killed, and he had for all the decades since the war. It was a beautiful and deeply emotional moment in our relationship. His fear was that when he died, they would be who would be waiting for him. And his vision was that they would still be in their army fatigues carrying bayonets. After some time and further discussions, after carefully feeling my way into the darkness, he was able to hold a different vision. That if they were there at all, and we both agreed that the possibility was quite real, that they would be there to welcome him with love and forgiveness. We talked in great detail and with too many tears for me to think he was not truly able to turn that vision into something he almost looked forward to after so many years of holding all of them with such love in his own heart. He had silently been asking to be forgiven for decades, and I have hoped ever since the moment he died that he was not disappointed. This is Sean Jung. Thank you for listening. And again, thank you to all the listeners who have bought me cups of coffee to help keep me alert and to help keep these podcasts alive. I hope you will join me again where the veil grows thin. <laughs>